So our message today is divided into two main points, and those are the points law and order. So the first half is focused on the legal side of things, lawsuits and whatnot. Uh, If you are either a lawyer or you work for a law firm, uh, don't get too excited because it's not going to be a deep dive into the intricacies of legal things. But nevertheless, point one is on matters pertaining to lawsuits, and this is in verses 1 through 11. It says, Dare any of you, having a matter against another, go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? You see, we have first the presence of problems. The issue at hand in verse 1 is that Corinthian Christians have embraced the spirit of the age. They're very much Corinthians in more ways than one. Not only having very worldly attitudes regarding sexuality, but also towards the court system. The Corinthians were famous for suing people. They loved that sort of thing. They, they loved Judge Judy before Judge Judy was a thing. I'm told that they would like to just watch lawsuits as a form of entertainment. That the whole industry of being a jurist, serving on a jury, serving on the panel of people that determine whether they're guilty or not guilty was, was a point of great excitement that people looked forward to. Here in our context, people, we, we dread that sort of thing. We're like, oh, I got jury duty. But that wasn't so for them. And then their juries would range in size from being somewhat small to being massive juries of a thousand people. So this was a whole thing. It was a whole part of their culture. And so the Corinthian Christians as well had embraced that to the end of not simply dealing with legal matters in the court system, but dragging petty disputes from interchurch conflict into the court system. The Corinthian Christians loved to sue each other. So when I was thinking of illustrations or trying to imagine scenarios, I made something up. So imagine that you're riding your chariot to church in Corinth. And as you pull into that Corinthian parking lot, the First Baptist Church of Corinth, your chariot wheel catches the wheel of another church member's chariot and causes his wheel to crack. You have damaged his chariot. But not only that, the horse was attached to the chariot and you spooked him. He got startled. And what happens when a horse gets startled? Well, they take off running. He snapped the thin little, tiny little string that was tying him to the post, takes off running with a broken wheel dragging behind him and makes mass chaos and pandemonium throughout the town. This horse, this runaway horse, is bashing into houses, knocking over vendor stalls, and it is absolute chaos. Now, What are you to do as the two Corinthian Christian chariot drivers and owners? Are you supposed to sue the offender for all he's worth? Or work it out with the help of godly leaders in the church? There's a a million other ways you could make up scenarios. But in this situation, what are you supposed to do? Now, what if you don't have godly leaders in the church? What if there's nobody who's of sound mind and wisdom and judgment and discernment to be able to look at a situation and figure out what happened, what the truth is, where where the bottom line is amidst all of the conflicting stories? And then also having the ability to honestly and fairly assess the, the damages, to see, okay, well, here's the real price of a chariot and then the value of your chariot and then the damage that was caused and how much of that damage you can fix versus how much of it will have to be hired out and what the actual cost of the situation will be. What if you don't have godly leaders? You need them. You greatly need them. What if the leaders that you have don't have wisdom? What if they don't have the ability to discern difficult matters? What are you going to do? What if you do have godly leaders? 
Well, in that scenario where you do have godly leaders, you need to elevate them in your mind from the American way of thinking to actually viewing them as having real authority. That they actually have authority to determine what's right and what's wrong and what should be done. So imagine in the chariot scenario that the church elders decide that Mr. Smith has to pay Mr. Jones $3,000 for damages and needs to rebuild the food stalls that he destroys. So what should Mr. Smith do? What should his response be to that decision? Well, he should pay the $3,000. Now, here's the problem. Ungodly leaders are so common across the landscape of American Christianity and churches, ungodly leaders are so common that they are virtually the norm. Not the exception, but oftentimes the rule. Or another way of putting it, it's a lot easier to find a bad church than a good church. And if you think that I'm overstating my case, I would invite you as a visitor to have some conversations with people that are sitting around you and they can testify that it is easier to find a bad church than a good one. Beyond this, the horror stories of church abuse, even in what we would often think of as good churches, doctrinally sound churches can still have abuse that takes place. Believe it or not, a confession of faith does not prohibit or prevent leadership mistakes or leadership abuse. These horror stories are so common that I would venture to guess that a large percentage of the people in this room right now have been under abusive church leadership at one time or another. I would venture to guess that, that probably at least half of you have been under that type of pastoral leadership. So what does this mean? What happens when you're under corrupt leadership inside the church? Well, you end up seeking justice outside the church. And this is a great shame. Let's look back at our text. 1 Corinthians 6. Dare any of you Having a matter against another, go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? That's part of why I'm saying this, this is a minor incident that, that he's speaking of. It's much smaller than the chariot situation. It's the smallest of matters and they're going to, to court against each other. Do you not know that we shall judge angels? How much more things pertaining to this life? If then you have judgments concerning things pertaining to this life, do you appoint those who are least esteemed by the church to judge? So not only are they having these petty lawsuits, but they're placing people in positions of judgment and authority who everybody in the church looks at and they say, that is the least credible person in this room. There was, once, there was once a church split that happened. Once upon a time. And in this scenario, there were two sides. One leader on one side, another leader on another side. And in this hypothetical situation, there, was, there were plenty of other people, but there was a particular person who we would call least esteemed. The sort of person that all the elders and leaders in the church looked at and his wife looked at and said, this man is not legitimate. He does not have wisdom. He is not of sound mind. He is not trustworthy. He does not tell the truth. His own wife cannot trust him. She tracks him wherever he goes because he lies through his teeth constantly. And this man, when this church split was going down in this hypothetical scenario, thought that he should be the decision maker about what should happen. 
in these types of situations, you do not bring your worst player off the bench and say, hey, you make the call. All the pressure's on you. No, you, you put in your best and brightest to make that decision. But this Corinthian church, they, they were setting up the worst people as far as character and wisdom and judgment and saying, okay, yeah, you make the decision. This is part of why it was so disastrous for the Corinthian church. You appoint those who are least esteemed by the church to judge. Verse 5, I say this to your shame. This situation, whatever it is, we don't have enough information or details to know what was actually going on. But we can see very clearly in this text that there were a lot of problems with this situation. First off, it was a problem that it was a problem in the first place. That's, that's already a loss. Secondly, you don't have wise leaders. That's also a loss. That's a problem, you know? It's, it's, it's one thing if you have this, this issue, this conflict, but then there's some wise, godly counsel that can help you work it out. But it's double the trouble if once you find yourself in it, now you don't have anyone to help you get out of it. But then the third step, making things even worse than having no good leadership, is the insertion of bad leadership or problem people to step in and say, oh, I've got the solution. You should listen to me. This was a messed up situation. It was very bad. And that's the reason why Paul says in verse 5, I say this to your shame. You ought to be ashamed of this. Is it so that there is not a wise man among you, not even one, who will be able to judge between his brethren? The brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers? Paul has a concern for the witness and testimony of the gospel here in verse 6. Professing Christians suing each other over the most minor, petty, insignificant things, and the whole town, the Corinthian, Corinthians, are coming out to see it for their entertainment. They're like, yeah, let's go check out that church fight that's going to be televised on all the local channels. Let's gather together in the town square because in Corinth, the Bema seat is in the middle of the town square. And I can show you the video if you want to see it again. It's just right there out in the open. So how shameful and embarrassing this would be to have Mr. Smith and Mr. Jones standing up there fighting not about the $3,000 worth of damage over the chariot wheel, but perhaps about stealing his chariot parking space. Something that is exponentially more petty and shallow and nonsensical. And then someone or someone's decided that they would set up the, 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 the greatest scoundrel in the church to be the decision maker. And then someone said, guys, that's crazy. Let's just take it out into the court system because this is worse than having pagan Corinthians judge our case. And then they said, okay, fine, let's do it. And now the whole city is observing these two people taking each other to court over something that is so insignificant that it's embarrassing. And so then the world looks on at this situation and, and they're not even seeing a matter of real crime or damages. They're seeing petty bickering. And the Corinthian non-Christians are there buying their tickets and getting their buckets of popcorn to watch it to eat this conflict because it's very entertaining to them. So what happens when you're under corrupt leadership inside the church? You end up seeking justice outside the church. And these, I'll, I'll say this before it, it just needs to be said, that when there are situations where crimes are committed, you need to seek legal action. 
And this text, this passage has been often twisted and distorted and abused to cover up criminal conduct inside churches all across the country for a very long time. There have been lots of situations throughout the last, well, the the existence of our country where, let's just say these horrific situations, a youth pastor rapes a 12-year-old. And then someone steps up and says, oh, but we're not supposed to sue each other. We're not supposed to take this before the courts. We can't call the police because that'll make the church look bad. It'll make the gospel look bad. Well, you know what makes the gospel and the church look real bad? is when you cover up crimes. Just so you know, as a pastor and anyone who is a pastor in the United States, I'm a mandatory reporter. And I've taken courses training me to know what that is, what that means. So there are things that must be reported to the authorities, and there's no discussion to be had there. When there is a... Uh, I forget the term, but when, when there is a disclosure, when something is disclosed and it's told to me as a mandatory reporter, I call the cops. No questions asked. But when there is petty nonsense happening, I don't call the cops. When people just can't get along, when they're upset because certain decisions didn't go the way they wanted it to go, we don't jump into the court system. We work things out. We call other brothers into the situation. We ask for witnesses. We examine the situation. Again, not talking about crimes here, but suppose another hypothetical situation that has nothing to do with New York, but there was once a church where there was a Sunday school teacher who accused one of the children in the Sunday school class of having a bad attitude and was very upset about this. And so the Sunday school teacher was going around the church yelling at everybody because the child who was was allegedly disrespectful, this made it all the way back to the pastor. Then the pastor assumed that the child was in the wrong and so confronted the child and said, what did you do? What happened? And the child said, I don't know what you're talking about. There was none of this even occurred. So then the pastor goes and speaks to the Sunday school teacher, speaks to other kids in the class, and finds out that the teacher is off his rocker, and just made the scenario up, and it didn't even happen in the first place. And that's, that's the end of it. We don't go further with this. We don't escalate these things. But when you have people that come together People are sinners. There is indwelling sin that remains, such as pride and egos and all sorts of fleshly things. And so people want what they want, and that still comes out because we are not yet glorified. Remember that word from last week. We're not sinlessly perfect, so there will be problems. There will be conflicts and disagreements. There will be differences of stories where one person says a certain thing happened and someone else says, well, actually, that didn't happen. There's not even a little bit of truth in it. And then you have to ask other people and investigate and find out what the witnesses say and then come to conclusions based on the evidence. Again, not talking about legal things, not talking about crimes, but disagreements, misunderstandings, People getting offended or upset or not getting their way. Misunderstandings over intent. Someone thinks that someone intentionally snubbed them from a certain thing because they didn't know that a party was happening and they weren't invited. Paul is very concerned for the testimony of the gospel and that that Testimony is harmed when Christians are suing other Christians over petty nonsense. He calls it a great shame. Verse 5 calls it a shame when this happens. 
verse 7 says that it is a great failure. Now, therefore, it is already an utter failure for you to go to law against one another. Why would you not rather accept the wrong? What does this mean when you are under corrupt leadership inside the church? You end up seeking justice outside the church. That scenario is called a great shame, a great failure. So then what are you supposed to do? What should leaders do? Well, leaders should lead rightly. If this is the Corinthian context where the situation is existing as a problem, these leaders need to step up their game. They need to get it together. If you see something, say something. Don't just sit back and be like, oh, well, that was bad, but I'm going to let it slide because I don't want to offend them because then they'll be mad at me and then I'll have to deal with 18 hours worth of meetings and then other people will be mad calling me a big meanie because I confronted them. No, you have to deal with it. You have to step up. You have to stand up and say something. But what if you say, well, I'm not able to do that. Well, you need to do what Mike Abendroth told me to do, which is, Andy, you need to learn to say no. Which means cultivating things inside yourself that you're currently lacking. You need to equip yourself in ways that you are not currently equipped. So maybe, perhaps, you need to think through scenarios before they happen and decide what you're going to do when that thing happens. Practice saying words like, no. Cultivate wisdom. We have a book that helps us with that. Most of you have it in your hands right now. And if you don't, I can get you one. Cultivate knowledge. Seek understanding. There is knowledge and wisdom and understanding outside the Bible, by the way. So let's say that you're concerned with uh, legal matters and what, is, what, is, what are the laws in a particular situation. Well, you can look that stuff up so that you know. Let's say we're talking about a practical situation, uh, the, the anti-abortion ministry. What can we do and what can't we do? Where are the boundaries and parameters around our conduct and other people's conduct and what's right, what's wrong? You might not feel like it's wrong to grab that person by the shoulders and physically restrain them from entering that building, but guess what? The law says that you can't do that. You might not feel like it's wrong for you to get a PA system and come out on the streets without a sound permit. You might feel like that's within your your rights, but the law says it's not, that you have to get a permit. So we need to equip ourselves in all sorts of ways by cultivating wisdom and knowledge and understanding so that when things happen, we can rightly discern. We can rightly judge situations to know what should be done. Further, we must cultivate sound minds. In any situation, not just in a church, but on a baseball team or anywhere else, there's people in the room where you're like, that's not someone that I would go to for a decision on a tough situation. And then you would see someone who's like, oh no, that person does have sound advice and good understanding of the ins and outs and all the complicated factors related to the situation. Why? Because they have a sound mind. Let's be real here. They don't do drugs. Their mind, they're all there when you talk to them. So cultivate within yourself sound minds. This comes through all sorts of ways, but education is a huge part of it. Cultivate wise judgment and sharp discernment. Develop the ability to see the difference between what is right and what is almost right. Just so you know, lies don't come with giant signs over them that flash and say, this is a lie. No, they come dressed up as the truth, and you think it's the truth for the first three hours of listening. 
And then you start to see some small red flags here or there. And that you, then you start to realize that this whole thing is what we would call begging the question, which is an argument made on a false premise. So they have a few false premises that then the entire scenario is built upon. And then when you take those lies out, the whole thing collapses. Or as Michael Fallon calls them, fertile fallacies. A fertile fallacy is a lie with legs. It's not just a lie, but it's a lie that travels. It goes places, and it's effective, and it can get people to jump into it. As leaders, or potential leaders, or people who want to marry a leader, or any other things involving with leaders, you need to develop discernment. Develop the ability to see the difference between what is right and what is almost right. You need to tell the difference between the truth and the almost truth. Develop the ability to discern between sheep and goats, as well as the difference between both of those and wolves. This requires setting aside rose-colored glasses and putting on well-adjusted reading glasses, which enable you to see detail and to spot the truth in a sea of blurry gray. Speaking to church members, not leaders, but just regular church members, you need to develop the ability to know what a leader ought to look like. Because you're looking for leaders who have that ability. You're looking for leaders who can understand complicated issues. Ask them. Ask them questions about important matters, not just to annoy them, not to annoy them at all, not to um, just to have intellectual exercises or petty debates like you would do in freshman or sophomore year of college just because you learned about a new thing that exists, so now you want to challenge everybody with it. No. Not because it's an important matter, and you want to see if they thought deeply about it, to see if they know the, ex- the issue exists, and to see if they understand the ins and outs of the 18 different positions on that thing. Why? So you can see if they have the ability to discern and to exercise sound judgment. This is, number one, the presence of problems, which is under law. So under law number two, the reality of eternity. The reality of eternity. So number one, the presence of problems. Number two, the reality of eternity. The purpose of eschatology is not to fuel speculation and endless debates. But rather, the purpose of eschatology is to fuel our hope, to embolden our faith, and to give us an anchor in the midst of the darkest trials. To set our affections on things that are above, not on things on the earth. To lift our gaze to the heavenly kingdom and to set our hope fully on the grace that is to be given to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's the purpose of eschatology. And eschatology impacts all sorts of things and it's all over the Bible in different ways. Ways that we might not necessarily think are eschatological or having to do with the end times, if you're not familiar with that word. In our passage, in our paragraph here, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Do you not know that we shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? It's helpful every now and then to stop and take a step back and think a little bit about things that we don't really know anything about. This idea that the Christians are going to judge angels? What does that even mean? We have almost no information on that. But there is a very real angelic spiritual realm that really does exist, even if you're not charismatic. And that very real unseen realm has angels and demons in it, and they will be judged at the end of the age. They will be judged by God in a final sense. See, right now they're 
Satan is roaming to and fro all over the earth. The angels and demons are doing all kinds of things, very active at this moment. But there is a judgment day coming, and our text says that Christians are going to judge them. And I don't know how that works. I don't know what that's going to look like or what the basis of it is in any practical way. But this reality of eternity, this eschatological factor, is brought in by the Apostle Paul as part of his rebuke to the Corinthian Christians. He's reminding them of eternity in the middle of their church fight. Verse 9 also brings in the reality of eternity. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. He's continuously bringing this reality of the future into the present in the minds of the Christians. We need to think about that. We need to think about it far more than we do. Now before we launch into verses 9 through 11, I have a question for you, and I'm about to ask for a show of hands, so be, listen, listen carefully and be ready to vote, because there is some difference of opinion regarding my pronunciation of a word last week, and I'm genuinely curious. You might think I'm joking, but there is a word in verse 10. It is the fourth word of the verse. It's after the second word, nor. And I just want to know, if it's supposed to be pronounced Covetous, covetous, or covetous? With the, with the, hang on, I'm gonna ask for, you're gonna, you're gonna get a chance to vote, okay? So option one is covetous. Option two is covetous, with more of a ch sound. So if you think it's supposed to be pronounced covetous with a soft t, raise your hand. Oh dear. <laughs> Put your hands down. If you think it's supposed to be option two, with the pronunciation like the word caution, Raise your hand. Okay, well, <clears throat> I guess I was wrong last week. Um, majority's not always right. I grew up thinking my entire life that it's covetous, sort of like cautious, but um, yeah, I see there's no I, but um, uh, yeah. Anyway, verse 10. No, actually, let's go back to verse 9. Thank you for that clarification. Do you not know? By the way, the word do you not know exists how many times in this chapter? Did you count? Six times. That would also have made a great alternate title for this message to somehow incorporate the concept like you should know these things. Or stating the obvious. Or something like that. Because he says, do you not know? Do you, if this was going to be a six-point sermon, those could be your six points. Do you not know? These are obvious things, but you're missing them. Verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? In this particular section of this book, Immediately in this context, in chapter 6, which the chapter and verses are added a thousand years later, but we use them to help us find things. In this immediate context, when he's talking about the unrighteous, he's talking about the people in verse 10. The thieves and the other people. Covetous. And the extortioners. In all likelihood the lawsuit people. But the sexually immoral people are also tied in because we just talked about that last week in chapter 5, and then we're going to talk about it again here at the end of chapter 6. So he is tying it all together. But he's saying, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. 
Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. That is bad news. That is what we call the law. It exposes our sin and shows us to be guilty before God. It shows us as people who are sinners, who have broken God's standard of holiness and righteousness and justice, the light turns on in the room and you see all the spots everywhere and you say, oh no, we have problems. And that's their case very clearly. Verse 11 says, and such were some of you. He doesn't shy away from saying, hey, you guys have this problem. No. He says, this is true of you, but there's an important word there. He says, such were some of you. The power of the gospel actually has the power to save people. This is one of the most basic fundamental problems with what we would call side B in the gay Christian debate. So you have side A, which is what we would call the traditional view. Side B is a third way view. And side C and then a whole bunch of other options are further left of that. So the prohibitive view says homosexuality is sinful and wrong and Christians should not do that. The accepting view says, you're good, it's great, by all means, whatever, who cares? Those types of churches have the rainbow flags out front. And then there's the side B, which says, well, you, you know, you're born that way and you're a gay Christian and you know, that, can, that can be holy in certain ways. They might say, well, just don't act on it, but you could be gay married and you can even sleep in the same bed and you can cuddle, but just keep your pants on. Because if you're that way, that's who you are. That's your identity. You are a gay Christian. That's false. When a person comes to Christ, when a person is saved, they are no longer identified by their old nature, their old man. I'm not interested in debating whether or not a person is born with certain tendencies. Or whether they develop them as a consequence of certain uh, physical or medical procedures that they experience or suffer or encounter. Whether it comes because of abuse or hormonal issues that develop. That's not my purpose or my concern or my debate. The issue is whether or not a particular sin remains your identity as a believer in Jesus. And our verse here makes it very clear that the answer is no. When a person is saved, whether they come from a background of fornication or idolatry or adultery or homosexuality, or more particularly sodomy, or being a thief, or being covetous, or being a drunk or an alcoholic or being someone who is angry and just an angry, bitter person or an extortioner. When that person is saved, they're actually saved. They get a new name, a new nature, a new identity. They're no longer the old man, but they have a new nature that they've been given Yes, the flesh still remains, but that flesh is continuously being mortified by the power of the Spirit through the Word of God, through the ordinary means of grace, such as, not the least of which, or the foremost is, the local church. Which is why Paul says to them, you were washed and that's what baptism symbolizes. When a person is baptized, that's a physical, visible showing, a demonstration of them having been washed by God. You were sanctified. 
The word sanctification occurs throughout our New Testament, and it, often, it, it appears in different tenses of a past, present, and future. You were sanctified in a definitive sense, in a, 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 an action that is completed and it has continuing results. You were sanctified. You were made holy. Yes, you are being sanctified and you will one day be finally sanctified and fully sanctified. But these Corinthians have actually been sanctified. And then beyond that, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. If we as either Reformed, confessional, quasi-reformed, quasi-confessional, or something else. If we were writing this, we might want to rearrange the word order a little bit. We might want to say, oh, well, justification should come first. And then washing, and then sanctification. And sanctification should be sanctification instead of sanctified, because that's the way it fits better in our charts. But Paul's not concerned with that stuff. He's not concerned with your ordo salutis or the, the... debates about these things. He's just saying, guys, you have been born again by the power of God. You've been saved and there is a real transformation that has taken place. And yes, there is also paperwork in heaven that has been transferred that shows you have been justified. And by the way, all of that is in the name of our Lord Jesus and it's accomplished not by you, not by trying really hard, but by the spirit of our God. When I ask a person in a membership interview, what is the gospel? And they start by saying, well, um, I, this, that, and the other, we're headed the wrong direction from the get-go. Well, the gospel is what teaches us how to live. No. The gospel shows us um, how to be a good person. No. The gospel is Jesus died for our sins. That's it. It's the work of Christ alone. And that's what saves us. And that's what sanctifies us. And that's what will glorify us. So if you're here today and you don't actually know Jesus, you're not actually a Christian, I'd invite you to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And when I say that, what I mean is the work of Christ, Jesus, who he is, what he did to save people like you and me. You're bad. You're a sinner. You're a lawbreaker. You fit the description of this, these verses, 9, 10, 11. But Jesus wasn't like that. He didn't do any of those bad things. He lived a perfect life. And then he went to the cross and he died as our substitute, taking our place as our representative. And a legal transaction took place on that cross where our sins were placed on him and his righteousness is transferred over to all who would ever believe on him. And then he dies, actually dead. And then he's actually buried. And on the third day, he physically, truly, genuinely rose from the dead. And that resurrection showed and demonstrated and proved to the world, both humans and angels, that the whole thing was true. It it, it was accomplished. It succeeded. The transaction went through. The payment was accepted. And now, since then, Jesus has sent his people to go preach that message that Jesus has done this incredible thing to save sinful people like you and me. And all you have to do to get in on it is believe on that message. Believe that Jesus really did what he said he would do. He took your sins and your sorrow and he made them his very own. He bore your burdens to Calvary and suffered and died alone. And you see that, and you believe, and you say, oh, how marvelous. I have no idea where I'm in my notes, but let's go on. Order, point two. All things are lawful for me, but all things are not helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any food for the stomach and the stomach for food, but God will destroy both it and them. Now the body is not for sexual morality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body, and God will... And God both raised up the Lord and he will also raise, up, raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are the members of Christ? Shall I take them, the members of Christ, and make them members of a harlot or a prostitute? Certainly not. Do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For the two 
he says, shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. So this abiding question, the reason why I've labeled this point two order, is because that question rises in the minds of every Christian, which is, how should we live? Okay, the gospel, that's great. It teaches us about Jesus and his life, death, his resurrection. But so what? What's the next step? What's the conclusion? Where do we go from here? How do we live on the basis of these things? How should we as Christians live in the midst of cultural chaos? Well, the reality of Christian freedom is true and real. But as we saw and were reminded last week, the Corinthian Christians are using this idea of freedom in Christ to excuse shocking things. So the nature of Christian freedom is not necessarily is this thing lawful? Am I allowed to do this? Does the law of Moses or the law of Corinth or whatever law of whatever land I happen to be under, does that allow me to do this? That's, that's not really your concern. Sure, it's there. It's a factor, but it's not the primary one. Can I do this? But rather the question is, is it helpful if I do this? There are things which are permittable that in some circumstances are not helpful. And so in those instances, those things which are not helpful should be avoided. Yet when circumstances are different, it's fine. It's irrelevant. It doesn't matter. You can do the thing. Let's just say in a, I think I'm only making up one Example here, but you have the freedom to wear a particular article of clothing. But you know that your grandma hates it when you do. And today is Mother's Day, and you're going to go have lunch with your mother and your grandmother after church. So, for her sake, to help her, to bless her, to help her have a nice afternoon, or maybe to give her a positive view of Christianity because she's Catholic and you're a Christian and she thinks that now that you left Roman Catholicism, you just become this this loose, wild person because you now wear pants instead of skirts only. I don't know. Make up some situation. There's something that you wear that she doesn't like. And so to help her have a nice afternoon when you come over to visit, you dress differently than you would when you hang out with friends. We call this issue, I think I used this word last summer, this issue is called adiaphora. And you need to have a category in your mind for that. You need to know this word. A-D-I-A-phora. P-H-O-R-A. A-D-I-A-P-H-O-R-A. Adiaphora. Which I did use the dictionary... I looked up this word, and it says it is a matter having no moral merit or demerit. It's not right or wrong. You can do it or not do it. It doesn't matter. But it's not going to help a particular person in a particular scenario. So you're going to set that aside in order to help them. Whether it's something that you wear or something that you eat, whether it's words that you use, If you want a list of these, if you want a million examples of these, you can ask me while we're sitting in my living room eating chips and salsa. I do not want to talk about a million of these things after church today. But in the context of a peaceful, calm conversation face-to-face, I would be delighted to talk for hours about the opinions of random people on the internet who you do not know, but they have an opinion to try to bind your conscience about a certain thing. Or, 
All of this is stated by the Apostle Paul with this reality of eternity on his mind. And you see that in verse 14. Eschatology is not just stuff that happens at the end of the world. But all elements of the afterlife are tied into this, and this includes the resurrection of Jesus in verse 14. God both raised up the Lord. God and the Lord are referring to God the Father and then the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul is saying that as God raised Jesus from the dead, he so will raise you by his power. So he's pointing to the end when after you die, there will be a day where you are raised from the dead. And so that is this reality of eternity. That's this eschatology that he's bringing into this discussion of how we should live, how should we, we should live our lives. Jesus' resurrection from the dead guarantees our resurrection from the dead. Verses 15 through 17. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I, take them and, uh, shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Certainly not. Do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh. For he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. The reality that you will someday be raised by the power of God motivates our pursuit of holiness It motivates and compels purity. These things described in verse, this whole section, but particularly verse 15 and following, these these are some of those things that Paul says you ought to already know. These are obvious things. Do you not know? But his first one that he gives right here in verse 15, he actually points to what we today call church membership. Your bodies are members of Christ. Because your actual body, not just your mind or your spirit or spiritual things, but your actual body is part of the body of Christ and you are a member of his body the same way your right hand is a member of your body, that actually motivates and and, and impacts the way we view sin, the way we think about holiness. Should I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot, a prostitute? Certainly not. Andy, where is the place for membership in the Bible? Well, it's right here. Here's one of them. But I don't see the word. Well, the word member is right here. And this word right here in verse 15 is the same word that we mean when we say a member of the body of Christ. And so when you recognize through actual formal church membership that what that's talking about is membership in a local version, a local observable gathering of the body of Christ, that helps to compel your pursuit of holiness and godliness because as real and physical and tangible as our gathering is, so real is Jesus and so real should we think about how bad it is when we sin. Because when we sin, And in his scenario, he's talking about right here is actually literally seeking out prostitutes or prostitution. When you're seeking out prostitutes, you're doing that as a professing Christian and saying, Jesus is here with me and we're going to do this together. And Paul says, certainly not. Why? Well, he continues on, verse 16. Do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. 
So this type of sin actually has a very significant damaging effect on your relationship with Christ. Because it's lying about who you're in union with. You're in union with Christ. Verse 18, flee sexual immorality. There are different words used to describe the Christian's relationship to different types of sins throughout the Bible. It'd be a great study for you to do on your own time, not right now. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. But here, and in plenty of other places, it says flee sexual immorality. Look at the example of Joseph. What did he do when Potiphar's wife came calling? He didn't just resist. He got out of the situation. Don't tempt the devil to tempt you. Don't put yourself in that situation where what did you expect to happen? I've actually had people... Christians, professing Christians, tell me that the Bible doesn't say that unsaved Christian couples can't live together. And where in the Bible does it say they can't sleep in the same bed together? It just says we're not supposed to, you know, cross certain lines. You see, when you are putting yourself in that position, you are tempting your flesh to tempt you. What do you expect is going to happen? First off. Secondly, nobody believes you when you say that nothing is happening. Your Christian friends don't believe you, and your non-Christian friends don't believe you. And the Bible also says don't lie. The Bible says flee sexual immorality, not get as close as you can, not pursue it, not put yourself in a position where you know you will be tempted beyond what you are able to bear, what God is, beyond what God has designed you to be able to bear, to contradict nature. Why, why does he say to do this? Why does he say to flee sexual immorality? Well, because verse 19 says, you are not your own. You don't belong to you. Your body doesn't belong to you. It belongs to God. It belongs to Jesus. It belongs to the Holy Spirit. The Trinity is involved in this. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? Who you have from God. And you are not your own. For you were bought with a price. You were bought by the blood of Jesus. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. You are not your own You are bought with a price. So, as I was thinking about this and preparing this message, it raised the question in my mind of the Heidelberg Catechism. But that's not what you thought I was going to say. What is your only comfort in life and death? What is my only comfort in life and in death? It is that I am not my own but I belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all of my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. Let's close with prayer. Father, we thank you for this chapter, 1 Corinthians 6 for its specific instructions for us. Thank you for the way that it fights against any tendency or temptations towards Gnosticism, towards saying, hey, God just cares about our our hearts or our spirits, but doesn't care about our bodies or what we do. I pray that we would recognize that all of us belongs to God. We pray that we would seek to live 
whole lives that are completely devoted to God, our bodies and our souls, our weekdays, our weeknights, our weekends, and week, then the nights. Lord, we pray that we would be people that are devoted to you in our work and in our conflicts, that when difficulties arise, that we would seek to honor you even in the way in which we have disputes and seek to solve those disputes. I pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen.